All right, of course, we've been talking about just, just some uh, fairly basic principles regarding music, uh, sacred music. And uh, we've covered a lot of territory. We haven't really touched the tip of the iceberg as far as exegeting all these passages and all, uh, all that's involved in them. But I just want to bring up this question for thought as we head into this, because we're seeing this a lot in fundamentalist churches, let alone those that have jettisoned that name. If you, I want to be careful saying this, obviously, I, I don't mean this tritely, but if you were the devil and trying to bring churches from a solid position over to error, how would you do it? They would not make that transition usually in one jump. Here's how it happens. They go from solid position with good reasoning and principles behind it. They not only know what they believe, but they know why they believe it. The next step in that is to hold the shell of a good position, but to not know why you believe it. The next generation really doesn't know why you believe it. So that solid position becomes preference. Once a solid position becomes only preferential, a church is in big trouble. Because it's only a matter of time before they or the kids growing up in that church cross that bridge. We're seeing that in a whole lot of areas. Uh, one of the loudest warnings is in the area of music. Uh, when music is treated as merely preference, that's a bad footing to be on. And uh, of course, we've laid this foundation a great deal. That The Bible says a lot about music. Uh, Satan himself is a very musical creature. Uh, some have called him the master of media. He had tabards and pipes built into him. We talked extensively about the, uh, the emotional nature, the power of music. And all of us would recognize music is powerful. Uh, some of you, I, I, think, I think I may have mentioned this. Have you ever seen those little exercises they'll do? They'll show a little clip of a video, and then they'll play different music behind it. They'll play this goofy little song, and you think this is comedy. And then they play this ominous music, and you're, you're waiting for the guy to jump out with an axe. And it's just illustrating how powerful music, it, uh, music can be. And of course, I say it's totally insane to think the devil would leave something as powerful as music alone. And music is absolutely not neutral. Music is language. The music is, uh, carries associations with it. Uh, it, it. It speaks of certain things. It's associated with things. It brings things into the mind. That's uh, no small matter. And so we've been walking through uh, scriptural principles regarding sacred music because this isn't the only issue. You know, we've been going through apostasy this year, the downgrade among professing Christendom, and it's manifested in a lot of areas, but one of the biggest vehicles for doctrinal destruction is music. It was Gordon Sears who said, if a church loses its stance on music, it will eventually lose every other standard. He was exactly right. Now, that's not legalism, that's biblical principle. And uh, thousands of times that's been replayed, that's been illustrated over and over again. And so we were talking about David, how... Uh, David, David brought in sort of a new era 
and that was instituting music, setting up the priests, and he did that, uh, the Bible says later on in David's life, he did that by divine decree, the Lord revealed that to him. But a new era began with David. If you think of the tabernacle and uh, how that's laid out in the law and the priestly duties and everything like that, music wasn't there. There were no priests at first assigned to the music ministry. Okay, that just apparently, if it was, it's not mentioned. But then here comes David, and all of a sudden it's filled with holy worship music. And we're moving further along towards the coming of Christ. It's David who is one of the types of Christ. He's promised an eternal throne and kingdom ruled by his son who is Christ. Now in foreview of that glorious kingdom, David starts writing a messianic hymnal. And again, it says something when the largest book in our written Bibles is a hymnal. And uh, I, have to, I have to remind myself of that because I'm not Hebrew. I don't know the music that they accompanied this to. Uh, so obviously, as a translation comes across, it loses some of the, uh, maybe the parallelism and some of the, the beauty of the poetry part just because it's brought in another language. Okay, but it is absolutely a hymnal. These were things they sang. They sang about a human experience in their walk with God. They sang about the ups and downs. They sang about the times when they wondered where God was. And I find it so encouraging that God inspired songs that encourage us to express things like that to Him. Not in accusation and unbelief, but to be honest with God. How many of you have never had a time where you wondered where God was? (laughs) We all have. Some of us have probably been there this week. It's okay to talk that out with the Lord. Lord, it seems like you're very distant. Is there some sin in me? Or is this just a tunnel I'm walking through? So the psalmist does that. They also express tremendously deep uh, theology. Um, All right, so anyway, get to the end of Psalms. The last uh, five Psalms are basically a messianic hymnal. They explode with messianic praise. And so you get to these last Psalms. Praise is mentioned 50 times in those last psalms. The psalms are about an everlasting kingdom. You see that in Psalm 145, 13? Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. The words forever and everlasting in all generations appear nine times. Think of that in contradistinction to the world we live in. How many things do you see in a given week that are permanent? I mean, these bodies of ours are going to be remade, but this body the way it is isn't permanent. (laughs) I have reminders of that when I reach for the ibuprofen. That's a sobering thought to remind ourselves of, that everything your eyes have ever seen is going to burn. Everything. Amazing thing. And so you get to these messianic psalms and it's everlasting and forever and to all generations, etc. They prophesy of a time when the Lord will build up Jerusalem and strengthen the bars of her gates and gather together the outcasts of Israel and make peace within her borders and fill her with the finest of wheat. To see Psalm 147, look at verse 2. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts 
of Israel. And then verse 13, For He hath strengthened the bars of thy gates, He hath blessed thy children within thee. Verse 14, He maketh peace in thy borders, and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. Now, at what time after David was that fulfilled? It hasn't been. They haven't dwelt like that in peace and blessing in their land. Uh, They've been under the dominion of the Gentiles for a very, very long time. And the Lord says that's going to happen until the very end uh, when Christ comes back. Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled or be come in. The entire universe will praise the Lord. The angels, the sun, the moon, the stars, the heavens, the earth, the mountains and hills and trees, the beasts and flying fowl, the kings, the princes, the judges, the young men and maidens, old men and children. You see that in Psalm 148. So that psalm's all about. And it's, it's not just asking for this to happen now. It's prophesying of a time when this will be the case the world over. Think about it for a minute. Think of all the things... All the colors we can't see. All the sounds we can't hear. I find it fascinating to study the, just the spectrums of visible light. We see, I don't remember what it is, it's less than 5% of the actual visible light spectrum. Uh, microwaves, for instance. Microwave energy is technically visible, just not to us. Uh, think of all the sounds in nature we don't hear. We have specialized equipment to hear fish and hear whales and hear all this stuff. What's it going to be like when you can actually hear creatures praising God and not just men. What an amazing thing. Uh, Basically, things are going to be as they're supposed to be. Uh, Right now, the earth is groaning and travailing in pain. It's singing in the minor key. It sounds very solemn and sad. Uh, I always think of, I grew up in Alaska, we have a lot of loons up there. Every time I hear a loon, I love the sound of loons. But when every time I hear them, I can't. I, I can barely stop, but th- it barely helps stopping and thinking. What a mournful sound of a dying world, you know? It just sounds mournful. I love them. I love loons, uh, but they sound. They just sound sad. Uh, it reminds me of uh, what what Romans says. Oh, then the Lord's people will execute vengeance upon the heathen. That's Psalm one forty nine. Uh, verse 6 to 9. But the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, This honor have all His saints. Praise ye the Lord. The Lord will be praised with the sound of the trumpet, the psaltery and harp, the timbrel and dance, the stringed instrument and organs, the loud cymbals and the high-sounding cymbals. And then we close with Psalm 50, 150, verse 6. Or let's just read Psalm 150. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Now in 2 Chronicles 5, I'll just read it to you, verses 12 and 13, we see the music ministry operating uh, full-blown in Solomon's temple. Here's what it says, Also the Levites, which were the singers, 
all of them of Asaph, of Heman, of Jedithan, with their sons and their brethren being arrayed in white linen, having cymbals and psalteries and harps, stood at the east end of the altar, and with them an hundred and twenty priests sounding with trumpets. It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord, when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music, and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever. That then the house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. All right, now what does that have to do with the New Testament church? Well, Romans 15.4 says, Whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning. Other passages talk about it. So what? I'm not going to go into this at length. We talked about it going through dispensationalism. This is where it's important to rightly divide the word of truth. I mean, is that, is that telling us that we're supposed to build grand tabernacles like the Mormons? with professional choirs, that that's what we're called to do. There's nothing wrong with a big building. There's nothing wrong with wonderfully trained choirs. Okay, but that, that's not the major thing being taught. Okay, there's principles we can take out of this for application. The New Testament church is a pilgrim church. We live in tents uh, like Abraham. We're composed of the weak things of the world rather than the noble. We're waiting and ready for the call, come up hither. We're not supposed to be laying up treasures on earth, but in heaven our affection's not on earth. It's in heaven where our Savior resides, Colossians 3. But there are important lessons from the temple music for New Testament churches. So let's just walk through some of them. In 1 Chronicles 15, uh, verse 16 and verse 28, um, you ever run across, and I want to be generous here, I understand a preferential view of this, but historically there have been some groups that are completely against any sort of musical instruments. And uh, their argument would be, uh, we don't see them emphasized in the New Testament. Some will go so far as to say it's totally wrong to have any sort of musical instrument. Um, but it's obvious when you take the Psalms and the Old Testament information and the uh, require, required worship uh, in the Old Testament... It's obvious God loves sacred worship music that incorporates instruments. There really should have never been a debate about this. Um, it's really kind of a foolish thing to divide over uh, the fact that instruments in and of themselves are a bad thing. Um, the Psalms aren't just for the Mosaic era. Okay, Today the church is called the house of God. Okay, to, Now obviously it's not talking about this physical building. But the church, the assembly of the saints is called the house of God. Um, and the things in the Old Testament are our example. And we're specifically instructed to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms is talking about the book of Psalms among uh, other types of psalms. But that takes us right back to the instruments that are mentioned there. Now, these aren't the instruments used to try to ape the world. Uh, some get the idea they hear the word dance and they're thinking of some nightclub. There's actually churches that do that. They have mosh pits, you know, where guys take their shirts off and they bash into each other and they smash their heads together, and it's it's all it's worship. Um, okay, that that's not what this is talking about. <clears throat> Symbols are percussion instruments, but there can be no doubt that when used in temple worship, they weren't continually banged together to create a discordant racket. That would have been more like Babylonian music. It wasn't a rock band. 
They're used in accompaniment to the singing of the priests, so it's obvious they were used in moderation so as not to drown out or overwhelm the voices. Um, another principle, the singers and musicians were, it calls them skillful and cunning. We don't, uh, we use the word, if I told you you were a cunning person, you probably would not take that as a compliment. Uh, but in the usage there, it's not in a negative connotation. It means they were skilled. They were good at what they did. Um, one qualification for different ministries is ability. Now, when God calls somebody to a certain ministry, He gifts and equips them for that ministry. Uh, it's true of pastors. They should be able to teach and to exhort and convince false teachers. And so to some degree, this is going to be true in a music ministry. We should all make a joyful noise and do our best uh, but as ability grows, there's going to be certain ones that are more gifted uh, at leading in that area and instructing in that area and taking charge of that. It says in 1 Chronicles 15.21, they excelled. In other words, they wanted everything to be done as well as possible. Mediocrity was unacceptable. Um, and, and really... This doesn't mean a carnal perfectionism, okay? This doesn't mean, come look at us, look how we do stuff, isn't it impressive? Obviously, that's a hard attitude that's dishonoring to the Lord. But the idea was, if God wants us to do something, He wants us to do it well. He wants us to do it as well as we can. Um, anything we do for the Lord should be done right with the highest level of expertise and preparation that is possible. Nothing will be perfect that we do, uh, but there's a difference between just throwing something out there and actually doing our best. He is worthy of our best. And so God is worthy of us getting stronger and better educated in areas uh, that would lead to our individual and, and church uh, growth and depth. Uh, 1 Chronicles 25.7, they were trained. So these, these priests didn't just roll out of bed and sound terrific. <laughs> it, uh, it put in effort. I know you've heard me say, if you've been here any length of time, I wish a lot of the, the time I invested in sports growing up, I would have invested in music instead. That would have been a far more productive thing for me to learn because I'd still be using it. I don't use sports a whole lot anymore. Um, it's one thing to just not know any different, but it's another thing to be content to remain and not want to grow, not want to be trained in certain areas. Um, next, they were well organized. There was oversight. They submitted to God's order and to authority figures God had put over them. They were assigned their places. Now, in their case, they used the lot. Okay, now here's a dispensational distinction. Let's say somebody reads that. They're, they're, they want to set up a church choir and they don't want to ignore the Old Testament. And so they gather everybody for the choir and the choir director says, okay, uh, I'm going to bring out a coin. I'm going to flip it. And that's how we're going to pick. Because they use the lot in the Old Testament. Is that a valid, is that a valid and helpful application or is that a problem? Come on, it's in the Bible, right? Everything in the Bible we should, we should do exactly like they did. Help me out here. What's that? You're right. How so? 
How, how are we in a different era than them? As far as God's stewardships? Not by the law. What, what do we have sitting on our lap in its entirety in written form that they didn't have? Uh, some of you, I, I've shared the story with some of you how I flipped a coin to determine the will of God one time when I was newly saved. And God was so merciful. He gave me heads in a row, ten times in a row. And uh, that was, that was, I didn't know any better. I really didn't. I did not know any better. I'm not advocating doing that. I think it's funny now uh, because it should have been obvious, the decision, but I didn't know any better. Okay, so no, it's, but the, here, here's the application you can make. They wanted to know the mind of the Lord. They cared about what God thought, even in music. Because who gifts people in music? God. Who created the voice? God. Who is the main audience in a worship service? It's the Lord. Okay. Who's the audience that, that matters the most this morning? It's King Jesus walking through and uh, looking at his candlestick, his lampstand, which is the church. Um, he's the main audience. <clears throat> so, in other words, the will of God was done and sought. But here's another application. There's no place for jealousy and carnality and favoritism in a music ministry. Think of, just think about this for a minute. Have you ever been in a larger church that has this massive choir that's very impressive? I love, I love that kind of music, if, if it's, it's sacred music, good music. And, and that's, a, that's, a, that's a great thing to have. But let's say they sound incredible, top-notch musicians, highly skilled and trained. And pretty much anybody who comes is highly impressed, gripped by the quality of the music, uh, other churches send their people there to be trained, but what, let's say what they don't know is that there's this internal power struggle. One soloist secretly hates another soloist because she gets more opportunity to show off her voice, and oh, I don't like her voice, and, and uh, one quartet gets bothered because this other one uh, gets asked to sing more, and and there's this jealousy and this strife and this competing for recognition. How much real spiritual influence can that group have? Well, not much. Completely grieving the Lord by, the, by that internal strife and attitude. One, one principle has helped me tremendously in my Christian life. There is never a contradiction or conflict or competition in the will of God. There isn't. The idea of competing for ministry positions is foreign to the godly mind. You know, sometimes pastoral searches can be, can be treated that way. Well, may the best man win. What a terrible misnomer that is. May everybody be in their God-appointed place and there's no issue, right? That's what everybody should want for each other. Uh, the music was a ministry of the priests, 1 Chronicles 15, 16. And uh, it's hard to miss the application we could drag across the New Testament. 1 Peter 2, 5. Are there priests today? Are there priests today? Yeah, but they're not the guys in the backwards collar down at the cathedral. Who, who's the priest today? I'm looking at priests. 
And uh, that's talking about the lady priest. I'm not going to use the word priestess. That just sounds weird. But who's who's the Lord's ambassadors? Who's the priests? It's ye are a royal priesthood. You're a chosen generation. So music is the ministry of us as priests also. Um, actually, First Chronicles, let's flip over there. First Chronicles 15. I know I keep mentioning a lot of these. First Chronicles 15. <clears throat> now, let me ask this question. Okay, we, we just talked about different dispensations. And I think sometimes, now, is it better to be, now obviously God's been gracious all along, God didn't change, so when we say the dispensation of grace, we have to be careful, we don't think God somehow became gracious in the last 2,000 years. That's not true. But how many of you want to live under the law and not in the church age? I don't. Was there any enabling at all, any divine enabling under the law? Now, that's a, that's a harder question. There had to be some. Because here's my point. Was it all somber, rules, misery, burden? I mean, read David's Psalms and tell me, was David a man who walked around with a perpetual frown griping about the law? How would a guy say something like, oh, how love I thy law? It is my meditation all the day. Or as the heart panteth after the water brook, so panteth my soul after thee, O God. How about that one? Is that a man who's just stuck under the law? So here's my point. Even their singing under the law, look at uh, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 16. And David spake to the chief of the Levites to appoint the brethren to be singers with instruments of music, psalteries, and harps of cymbals, sounding by lifting up the voice with duty, with joy. Now, do you think they merely commanded joy? Thou shalt be joyful. Now put a smile on your face. Oh, well, lack of joy is typically a heart issue. So think about it. Even under the dispensation of law, without the complete written revelation of God, they were joyful and enthusiastic in their singing. They sang like God was worth singing to. That is such a need to follow that example in churches. <clears throat> to some degree, and the author of this lesson makes a statement, he said he believes that congregational singing is a reflection of a church's spiritual character. There's more to it than that. But it does say a lot. Now, I mean, think about it. Even under the law, they could sing with enthusiasm and joy. Now, let's say we were to stop this morning and say, let's just talk about all the reasons we have to be joyful. And we could just start with our position in Christ. How many of you are forgiven this morning? Now, is that temporary? If you fail today, does that go away? 
You're forgiven. How many of you are accepted in the beloved? How many of you are adopted? How many of you were chosen before the foundation of the world? How many of you are loved by God? How many of you are His child? How many of you are right now seated in the heavenlies? Above the smoke, amen? <laughs> we have so much to be thankful for. I'll be honest, I, uh, I'm ashamed how much I forget that. It's very easy to wake up and see a dark cloud. I mean, if, if we go looking for a reason to be frustrated, let's turn on conservative news. That'll give you lots of reasons, right? They're all temporal reasons. Uh, how much better to meditate on all the glorious truths in Scripture and all the glorious reasons we have to be thankful? When this speck of life is over and the tears and goodbyes and sorrow, heartache, spiritual war, all those are gone. Oh, what a, what a joy to sit and think about that. It's an amazing thing. So, I guess here's what I'm trying to encourage. Some of us may think, I don't, I don't have a very good voice, and that's okay to think that. But congregational singing is not to make us feel good about our voice. Who's it for? It's a gift presented to the Lord who made your voice, by the way, and loves it. And it's a ministry of edification to those around us. It's not for me or it's not just for you. So it's not about whether I feel like singing or I like to sing. And it's not a time to go after entertainment. It's singing to God and edifying one another. And it should be done with exuberance. Now, all right, 1 Chronicles uh, 25. Flip ahead a little bit. Tremendous terminology here. <clears throat> all right, uh, 1 Chronicles. Did I say second? I meant 1 Chronicles if I said second. 1 Chronicles 25. Moreover, David and the captain of the host separated to the service of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, with cymbals, and the number of the workmen according to their service was, and then it gives a list. How in the world do you prophesy with a harp? Well, I think it's including the verbal part, the singing going along with it, but the idea was speaking forth the Word of God in music form had a very, very powerful impact. I mean, how many, how many of you have a hymn you could think of that didn't mean a lot to you until a particular spiritual experience or trial or something. And ever since that song has been very dear to you, 
probably several of us. Why is that? Because the scriptural truth in there probably ministered to our soul at a very needed time. It prophesied in a sense. So if you compare 1 Corinthians 14, we won't turn there, which says all the saints should prophesy. I'm not even going to get on a rabbit trail about how butchered that chapter is. It's unbelievable. It doesn't mean that every member preaches. In fact, he limited the actual prophesying and preaching to two or three. But 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, Prophesying is speaking unto men to edification, exhortation, and comfort. So any of that is prophesying. So, in other words, it's speaking the truth of God or singing the truth of God, which glorifies Him and builds up His people, which is why we sing in services in the first place. Those are the main reasons. For all the prophesy means that every believer participates in and responds to every part of the service from the heart. To the singing and playing, to the preaching and teaching, even to the corporate prayer. That people are verbalizing that they're involved. They're together in in one accord. That is one manifestation of biblical unity. We're, We're together in this. We're on page with God. Remember, biblical unity is not all of us agreeing with each other. It's all of us agreeing with God. It's an important distinction. When visitors see that members are enthusiastically involved in the services, they understand the brethren really do believe in Christ and are convinced of the truth of the gospel of Christ. And then along those same lines, verse 5, All these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, in the words of God, to lift up the horn, and God gave to Heman fourteen sons and three daughters. I thought I had a big family. <laughs> but they sang God's words. A compare, you can. Uh, most of us know the passage, Colossians three sixteen. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Right. In other words, worship has got to be based solidly upon Scripture. It can't be heretical or frivolous or shallow. I'm not trying to be unkind. And by the way, just because a song's old doesn't mean it's good, and just because it's new doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. But as apostasy progresses, we better have our guard up. But a lot of what's produced today is frivolous, shallow, and heretical. And there's a lot of songs, and I have to analyze these to some degree, teaching on this and pastoring through this kind of stuff. There's some very popular worship songs out there that it's more the music creating an experience. When you actually analyze the words, it either means nothing, you can't tell what it means, or it's completely unbiblical. I mentioned one of those ones, Hill songs, a big one nowadays, it totally apostate. I wouldn't touch their music with a 10-foot pole. 
but one of their popular songs. Spirit, lead me where my faith is without borders. And uh, here's everybody swaying to the music. Now think about that. Again, this biblical faith without borders? Biblical faith has defined borders. There's, in other words, they're saying, give me a faith that has no opposition, no correction, uh, no voice of admonishment, no checks and balances, just let me float along with the feeling and experience. No thanks. That's a satanic kind of faith. I don't want any part of it. I hope you don't either. So, the first test of Christian music is the test of whether its message is scriptural. And again, we've covered this before. It's more than that. The message has to be sound. The music has to be sound. We have to watch association principles. What does this identify us with? That's a big that's that's important. But worship music should flow from lives that are filled richly with the Word of God and from lives that understand the Word and practice its precepts wisely in daily living. That's what creates a spiritual song service. It's saints walking in fellowship with God as they're growing, being filled with the Word and being edified and admonished in their worship to God. It's an amazing picture. All right, you can see it back in verse 3 there. They gave thanksgiving to God. Uh, That's the first and foremost purpose of the Christian life in church. There are two kinds of spiritual songs. There's those that teach and edify the brethren and those that praise the Lord. And if we think through our hymnal, we can think of examples each. I mean, brethren, we have met to worship and adore the Lord our God. What category does that fall into? Is that primarily worship to God, or is that more edifying and reminding us why we're here? Okay, And that's okay. There's a place for that. But then there's songs like, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. All thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. That, that's, a, that's worship. Um, so they fall into those categories. And again, we see that in the Psalms. Uh, we see song, Psalms composed directly to God. We see songs written to either talk himself into a biblical position or talk others into a biblical position or to share some experience for uh, the benefit of those uh, that were listening, but again, all of it done for the Lord's, uh, for the for the Lord's sake. So, in other words, true worship should be a blend of not only songs for edification of the saints. In other words, it can't go man-centered. If you've watched the trend of what's happened, again, I'm overgeneralizing this, but as a whole, I think I can prove this if I took the time. Newer music is drifting more and more towards human experience, tear-jerking stories, and not so much biblical, accurate truth about God and to God Himself. And then, of course, along with that goes a lot of the man-centered philosophical changes. I mean, think about it. If you're going to build a church based on the model of seeker-sensitive, we're going to do everything we can to get you to attend here. It's all about you. We've built this with you in mind. We built this with God in mind. (laughs) Right? 
that we want to build lives up for the Lord's sake. But if a ministry model becomes make the crowd happy at any cost, then the music has to reflect that. What you win them with, you win them too. So the music has to become man-centered. It has to appeal to the flesh. It all, it all kind of goes together. <clears throat> uh, true worship isn't a performance. <laughs> In other words, it's not, uh, it's not just a facade I put on. By the way, ministers can let preaching become a performance. What a curse that is. So true worship is glorifying God with a mind and heart for his attributes and character and works like we see in Psalm 100 or Hebrews 13. Um, One of the things I find interesting in the trend today is a lot of the militant songs, the songs that describe the martial qualities of the Christian life are falling out of favor very quickly. And they're being replaced with this sort of Gumby Christianity that knows nothing of contending for the faith and bucking up as a soldier under the battle. Um, songs like Hold the Fort, I love that song because it, it has a military quality, a good military quality to it. <clears throat> and then they sang in unity. The trumpeters, this is 2 Corinthians 5.12 and their 2 Chronicles 5.12.13. The trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard. So their singing and playing were one voice. In other words, it was harmonious rather than discordant. It was not a bunch of individuals doing as they pleased. Everyone was submitted to the Lord and to one another. And it's amazing. Anytime you see a revival, a true revival in Israel, the temple music was revived. You see it in the days of Hezekiah. I'll read it to you. And he set the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with psalteries, and with harps, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and Nathan the prophet. For so was the commandment of the Lord by his prophets. And the Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with the trumpets, and Hezekiah commanded to offer the burnt offering upon the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song of the Lord began also with the trumpets and with the instruments ordained by David, king of Israel. And all the congregation worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when they had made an end of offering, the king and all that were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. Moreover, Hezekiah the king and the princes commanded the Levites to sing praise unto the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed their heads and worshipped. So he's saying that the spirit of the worship followed the quality of the people's closeness to God. There were rooms in the temple for the singers and instruments. Uh, in Herod's temple, they were located below the Nicanor gate that led from the court of the women to the place of the sacrificial altar before the temple proper. In front of the Nicanor gate was a series of semicircular steps and a platform on which the singing priests presented themselves. And in ancient Israel, when she was right with God, the music associated with worship was carefully prepared and skillfully performed with godly oversight. 
And let me just encourage us in this. I Obviously, we're against the... I won't even be careful with the word contemporary. Contemporary just means newer, and, and that in itself isn't bad. But you know what I mean about the contemporary philosophy? But it's possible to push the next generation away because they want to see exuberance and enthusiasm. And many sadly run to the rock concert to see that, and it's a fake exuberism or exuberance and a fake uh, sort of energy. But I guess I'm saying the, the, the solution to the wrong musical direction is hearts that are submitted to God in fellowship with Him and doing our best to sing with exuberance and joy the right kind of music and, uh, and the right kind of worship. It's a, it's a fantastic thing. All right, we're out of time and we're out of lesson. Any uh, further thoughts or comments or additions or subtractions? I can't wait to hear the music in heaven. And I'll tell you honestly, I can't wait to stop fighting a battle with this topic. It's, it's complicated and it's getting more complicated and I'm not a musician. I try to know as much as I need to. Uh, but there are brethren who are far more skilled at going into musical theory and everything else. That's just not my thing. I, I love it. I love to push a button and know it all, but I don't. And I don't know that I ever will. Um, but I can't wait until the battle part's over. I mean, think about for a minute, we have to stand against doctrinal error now. Can you even fathom millions upon millions of believers from all generations with not a lick of division? Not a lick of suspicion? Not a hint of hypocrisy or self-promotion? No wandering minds? No stress? No bad voices? Right? I don't think there'll be any in the glorified in heaven. If there are, we won't be able to tell because everything's going to be perfect. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing that is to look forward to. I can't wait. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for giving us these principles. We do hope, I do hope these have been uh, profitable and helpful. And, uh, help us, Lord, to worship you more and more as you deserve. I recognize we grow in this. We're not going to arrive in worship tomorrow. But help us each to make sure that we're doing our best to present our best before you. In, uh, in congregational singing or in anything else we do, uh, for that matter, help us to be faithful in that which is least. I thank you that you see everything. And thank you for giving us so many good things to sing and to rejoice about. In Jesus' name, amen.